The Jewish Views on Review of the Year 2017. We look back at some of the biggest stories that affected the community over the past 12 months. Plus, as a special addition to the program, we hear about two projects that were founded by Jews, but not necessarily designed to benefit just Jewish people. We learn about Companion Voices and Feast. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The president of Guatemala, Jimmy Morales, has announced that his country will recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. The Central American country will move its embassy to the city from Tel Aviv. Guatemala was one of nine nations which voted with the United States when the UN General Assembly adopted a resolution denouncing Donald Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Palestinians have long laid claim to the city's eastern sector. The pop star Lord has bowed to pressure from pro-Palestinian fans in her native New Zealand and cancelled a summer concert in Tel Aviv. The singer said she'd done a lot of reading and sought a lot of opinions before booking the show, but then said it wasn't the right call. New Zealand's Jewish Council said that she was still performing in Russia, but no one's accusing her of complicity with Putin over the occupation of the Crimea or chemical warfare in Syria. A two-day-old baby boy born to Syrian parents who are living in a refugee camp in Cyprus has been flown to Israel for a life-saving heart operation. The move came after the Cypriot Health Ministry sought the permission of the Israeli ambassador to Cyprus for the child to get the treatment at Sheba Medical Center in Tel Hashemer and to be accompanied by his father. Tributes have been paid to the Liverpool-born former Labour and SDP politician Eric Moonman, who's died at the age of 88. Mr Moonman, who also served as president of the Zionist Federation, was considered by many to be the powerhouse of Zionism. He also served as senior vice president of the Board of Deputies and was an expert on security and counter-terrorism issues. And the Gogglebox star Leon Bernikoff has died after a short illness. He was 83. The retired teacher became known for his Yiddish phrases when he and his wife, June, became one of the first couples to join the Channel 4 show back in 2013. A spokesman for the company that makes Gogglebox spoke of Mr. Bernikoff's unique personality and sharp wit. Well, that's the news. Moving on to the sports news now. And the Israeli Chess Federation is demanding compensation after its players were banned from taking part in a tournament in Saudi Arabia. They were refused visas to enter the kingdom. Spokesman Lyle Eisenberg accused the Saudis of undermining the game's basic principles that no player should be refused participation in a tournament, while adding that the players were professionally and financially damaged. An Israeli who will be competing in an Arab state is Dudi Seller. He's the country's top tennis player, who's announced he'll be playing his first ever tournament in Qatar. Ranked 67 in the world, Seller will begin the new season in Doha, which will serve as the first of several warm-up tournaments ahead of next month's Australian Open. And finally, Brighton striker Tomer Hemed has been named Israeli Footballer of the Year. The 30-year-old called it a great honour and said it gave him great pride. Hemed played a key role in helping the Seagulls win promotion to the Premier League. And don't forget you can keep up to date with all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. Now the Jewish Views continues with Phil Dave. Vivian, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this edition of The Jewish Views. 
ordinarily, it's at this point I would say, let's start off as we usually do with a look through your copy of the Jewish News. But those observant listeners out there would recognise that there has been no copy of the Jewish News printed for this week. So instead, joining me to review the year's big Jewish news stories is editor Richard Ferrer, online editor Jack Mendel, and as a special treat, early on in the programme, Clive Roslin is here as well. So welcome to you all. And let's start off straight away by looking at one of the biggest stories that has affected, frankly, not just the Jewish community in this country, but actually probably Jews across the world. And that is, of course, Donald Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and move of the US embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Yeah, had back in January, someone asked me if you'd be sitting down here doing the news review of the year, back end of the year, would Mr. Trump still be president? I think a fair few people would probably probably shook their heads and say, no, actually, he'll be kicked out or the world would have seen sense by now. But no, he's a, a year into his tenure, at least three years to go, it would seem. And he is both delighted and horrified, I think, the Jewish community in equal measure. Delighted, perhaps, with the aforementioned acknowledgement of Jerusalem as the capital city of Israel, of which another country, Guatemala, I think, followed in recent days. It'd be interesting to see if other very strong allies along the lines of maybe Canada or India also follow in the weeks to come. Well, hasn't there been an African country that's also followed suit as well, I think? Well, we'll, we'll see, but it, it would strike me as unlikely if there's suddenly a mass empty real estate in Tel Aviv as, as lots of uh, embassies move lock, stock and barrel to Jerusalem in the years to come. I think it's more of a symbolic gesture at this stage. And horrified, I think, in terms of his reaction to the neo-Nazi rallies that took place in the United States earlier this year when he uh, blamed both sides, both the anti-Nazis and the Nazis, for the death of one of the protesters. So, yes, a very divisive character, one who will uh, continue to split opinion in the year to come. He certainly has divided opinion and it is extraordinary how people have reacted to it because of course we shouldn't overlook the fact that there are many more threats to peace in the Middle East than the US president agreeing or suggesting that he has every intention of moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. But Clive, I don't know whether or not you agree with no, that. No, I, I, I think it was one of the worst things you could possibly do because I believe absolutely that Jerusalem should be, and I've always believed this, should be an open city. It could be both the capital of a future Palestine and of Israel. And the great and most important thing is the two-nation state. And all that's happened now is brought on lots of anti-Israel feeling, lots of anti-Jewish feeling, and it's not doing any good whatsoever, in my opinion. But don't you think, Jack, that of course anti-Israel feeling exists regardless of what the US president does? I, I think that's probably fair. I think it's also quite interesting to see a lot of countries who would never dream of recognising Israel, places like Saudi Arabia and Iran, all of a sudden condemning Donald Trump making Jerusalem the capital, as if it would be okay as if Tel Aviv would be the capital in their eyes. So I think that there is a certain double standard here as well. People all over the world who wouldn't even think of recognising Israel in the first place, all of a sudden outraged that somebody has recognised Jerusalem as the capital. It doesn't really stand. Well, something else that caused a considerable amount of outrage in this country was the Al-Quds Day march. Do remind us what that was about. Well, I was I actually had the pleasure of being in central London for the Al-Quds Day march. I say pleasure quite sarcastically. 
thousands of people brandishing Hezbollah flags, emblazoned with AK-47s, marched through central London, one of the most liberal kind of free cities in the world. And they did so completely legally. The police stood there, didn't do anything. And to date, Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary, still has not taken action against people that want to fly Hezbollah flags. It caused a lot of anger and uproar in the Jewish community. And hopefully next year uh, it won't be repeated. Yeah, it was one of the most chilling front pages I think we produced this year. We went with the headline, the jihad is on our street. And there were these terror flags, Hezbollah terror flags. And we all know that's a a proxy Iranian army that's currently ensconced in in Lebanon. And there is great fear that on Israel's northern border, there will be a conflict in 2018 involving Hezbollah. So you have these people waving flags, wearing hats with these disclaimers stapled onto them saying, we are supporting the political wing not the military wing because currently the military wing is outlawed the political wing is not so it makes a mockery of british justice and the home secretary needs to address this why did the home secretary not do you think why did she allow it to happen because of that imbalance in the law that currently states that hezbollah are allowed a political wing but militarily they are not recognized as a legitimate force so it's something i think that in terms of lawfare, is being bent in the general direction of those who want to criticise Israel and want to do it brazenly and vociferously on the streets of our capital. Of course, though, that this one of the big discussions that arose because of this was that you can't necessarily stop people flying a flag. If it's a freedom of expression, a freedom of movement, it's not necessarily going to influence people to start going to join that regiment. Well, one hope it doesn't anyway, but... It can't be stopped because how do you police such a thing? But surely at the same time, if you know it's going to be a huge threat to peace and cause riots and trouble, you should therefore not do it. I mean, that just seems to be common sense. Well, one would hope that in these situations common sense prevails, but sadly not always. No, I think flying a flag is one thing. We can all be outraged by flying a flag. But when you actually hear what they were saying during the Al-Quds Day parade, blaming Zionists for Grenfell, that kind of thing is, is what we should all be worried about. And the fact that that kind of thing can be said, and still there's no action from Amber Rudd, we have to be really concerned. We have to be, we have to be pressing our politicians to take action on this sooner rather than later. Okay. Let's have a look at one of the other stories that was quite big from this particular year, moving completely away from politics. And it was the story that we actually learnt quite recently. It was the Golders Green Mosque and the old BBC Hippodrome building in Golders Green was recently purchased by an Islamic community that were moving from Cricklewood and have set up shop there, as it were, and set up, more importantly, a place of worship. And it caused a bit of an outrage, didn't it? Yeah, the Jewish community, particularly in the heartland areas like Golders Green, have every right to be sensitive and to be concerned when it comes to issues on on their doorstep. And in recent months, it came to light that this iconic building, the former Hippodrome in Golders Green was going to be converted into one of London's largest 
mosques. Now, the Jewish News took a very firm line on this. We were heavily, roundly criticised for defending the organisers behind the, the mosque, saying that it was a very important thing. It was There was nothing wrong with the organisation behind the, the people that were moving into the mosque. They had absolutely no record of connection whatsoever with problematic issues. There was no hint of anti-Semitism amongst the leaders. But we got a lot of ac- accusations, a lot of rude criticism, a lot of hostility that, that remains so to this day. But we stood firm. We are clearly, loudly supporting interfaith issues. And I think the Jewish community is the first to, to be critical and defensive when it is the subject of racism, anti-Semitism. So it, it wasn't a good look when there were members of the community that were attacking another race. They have, in fact, said, haven't they? They are, I wouldn't guess if I said they are pro-Jewish, but they they wish the Jews who live in Golders Green every success and they... All that part of it. Yeah, they've they've made all the right noises. And of course, there are some local issues that are entirely legitimate. Of course, it's a large mosque in Golders Green. So a lot of the people that use it will not be living in Golders Green. So there's pollution and and congestion and and traffic issues. And that's an important thing. And we need to understand that. But the controversy was completely, I think, out, out of sync in terms of the the nature of the complaints and I, I think there's a lot of people that hopefully will start changing their tune next year when if this is rubber stamped they do move in and hopefully are seen as a, an, an improving element to the community and not, not something that should be seen as an adverse element at I all. think you're absolutely right about that absolutely well another story that arose this year and a massive story at that and never mind criticizing other religions it was more about our own religion I'm talking about the head of the Spanish and Portuguese community, Rabbi Joseph Dweck, came well and truly under fire for remarks he made about the homosexual community. Yeah, I'm slightly too young to remember the Louis Jacobs affair. Not not wishing to glance in your direction, uh, Clive, <laughs> but I understand that was a, a huge issue back in the, in the 60s. That was a huge issue, but not in the same way, in fact. It was... There were points of view in that one that you could take either side and not be accused of something wrong Mm. whereas in this one it was appalling what was done to Rabbi Dweck who in fact had not said anything that was anti-religious at all he had talked simply about the fact that there was nothing wrong in love between human beings. He wasn't talking about sex, he was talking about love. And there were certain people who decided to take this up and really persecute him, which is completely and utterly wrong. And he put up a very good fight, I must say. He did, yeah. He's the the leader of the Sephardi S&P community, Rabbi Joseph Dweck. And, And as you said, he said, there's nothing wrong in the Bible with two men loving each other. That's what he said, yes. Yeah, that's what he said. Temperatures were raised. A lot of very strictly orthodox rabbis called for his head, said that he uh, wasn't somebody who was now qualified to lead a Jewish community. Letters were written, tables were banged, the chief rabbi got involved, and I think a measure of sense was brought to bear. And since then, JW3 were held up for criticism for their Gay W3 festival earlier this year. So there's definitely been, I think, a, a big, ugly 
public spat and split between these two sides of the community. I imagine it will be repeated again next year. But one thing that is really important to note, and that is the mere nature of our very programme that we are talking on now, is that there is a reason why there is the age-old adage of one Jew, three opinions. And that is because that we are a very opinionated people. And some say rightly so. People believe enough in what they believe in to the point that they are passionate about it and they will argue about it. It doesn't mean that any one particular individual is either right or wrong. In any instant, it has got to be about the individual and what they believe in. But of course, I think what we should all be looking to agree on is that as long as our point of view doesn't impact or upset another individual, then there should be nothing wrong with it. I've got to try and cram in a couple more guys just before we run out of time. And one of the other items that we couldn't help but overlook this year was that the Jewish News celebrated a rather important anniversary. 1,000 issues. We reached four figures earlier this year and we celebrated it in, in traditional style with a, a pull-out magazine reflecting not only on how the Jewish news has changed and moved with the times in the last two decades, but how the Jewish community has changed in those two decades and how the paper has reflected on it. The Jewish news came along in 1997, just after Diana, during the start of the Blair government. and I think It was the first opportunity for the Jewish community to have a really community newspaper, something that was just landing on their doorstep freely, openly, readily available every week. And that's really what we've tried to instill in the paper ever since, certainly in my eight or nine years as the editor. You know, we try and champion the community, support it, stand up for it and defend it. We try to be a, a paper with an attitude, with an edge, try and be as feisty as possible. And I think that's what people like about it. Uh, I think at 1997, I would have been two years off my mitzvah, so what, it would have been 11 years old. I remember reading the first one in 1997, and I've read it more or less every week since. <laughs> it, may I pay you a very great compliment? I find it a most, a most excellent newspaper, and one that's free, which is very useful. But one learns so much, and one feels very proud of being Jewish when reading the Jewish news. I thought you were here, slightly more discerning than that. Here, here at the Jewish you. Views, we are not in the least bit biased, of course. <laughs> and we're just going to round off this review of the year by looking back at some of the names of the Jewish community that we actually lost in the last year. I know it's always a very morbid time whenever it comes to the end of the year. And we'll be talking about this a little later on, Clive, in the schmooze about the end of the year. However, it's, it is worthwhile noting some of those that we have lost in the last 12 months. Jack, I know that you've been sort of paying close attention to this, haven't you? Yes, in 2017, we had a number of people pass away. We saw comedian Jerry Lewis pass away at age 91. The world's oldest man and the Holocaust survivor Yisrael Kristol died at the grand old age of 113. Labour MP Gerald Kaufman, who was the oldest MP at the time. And more recently, we had another Labour MP, Eric Moonman, who was a senior community leader as well and a friend of the paper. Yeah, well, Eric particularly, I think it was, his passing was felt quite starkly when uh, we found out in, in the newsroom, a dear friend of the paper, we used to speak to him most weeks, if not months, much loved, highly respected. And uh, yeah, his absence will certainly be felt. And of course, Eric Moonman, some people may know from previous incarnations of this programme and indeed, dare I say, Jewish radio stations from years gone by as well, was also involved in Jewish broadcasting occasionally. So you may have even heard his voice. And of course, let's not also forget the person who, technically speaking, gave Jewish people in this country a voice for the very first time. We lost Ian Swiger as well. He uh, passed away, I believe, back in November. So there we go. 
if you just allow me to finish this segment of the show on, on a happier note, you, I, we haven't mentioned there was actually peace in the Middle East this year. At Ramat Ganzu, one of the most popular videos was a lovely video of a monkey cuddling a chicken at Ramat Ganzu. So if you want to see a picture of a monkey and a chicken cuddling and grooming and just basically getting along like a house on fire, please do go to the Jewish News. And as I said, it's proof that peace in the Middle East is possible. Oh, indeed, a nice positive note to finish this particular look at the news for the past 12 months on. So thank you very much indeed to all of you. Clive, we'll see you a bit later on for the schmooze. Don't forget that from next week, as normal, you can always pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk, where, of course, you'll be able to find out much more about all of the stories that we've just been speaking about you are listening to The Jewish Views, and now it is time to learn about the first of two projects that we're going to look at in this particular programme that have been founded by Jews but not necessarily designed to benefit just Jewish people. first one we're going to look at was started by one Hannah Style. She's the founder of a project called Feast, which looks at trying to minimise waste food from supermarkets and give them instead to those who are most in need of such substance. Well, community editor Diana Toman has been finding out about this for us, following on from a Hanukkah-inspired party they held last week. Diana started by asking Hannah to tell us how Feast all began. Feast started in June 2015. My background as a dietitian has informed a lot of the influence of why I set this thing up. Primarily, I'm looking to prevent malnutrition. So vulnerable adults, homeless people fall through the net. They don't have a GP registration or an NHS number. So I'm trying to capture those people who are most vulnerable to malnutrition and prevent that, provide a meal for them that's accessible where they don't need to have an NHS number. The other goal of Feast and why I set it up is that there's a lot of food waste and it's a criminal thing that it's all being thrown away. And it was around that time when France brought in legislation to say that 30% of all retailers' waste needs to be donated to charitable causes. And so I was, you know, it was topical, it was in the air. And I thought, right, I want to do something about it myself. I also have to give credit to Moisha House, the community that I was living in, lots of wonderful people and the residents who I was living with. They were so helpful. A big shout out goes to them in helping me get this together. And the organisation Moisha House itself was also behind me, let me do it, but also was behind me. And then another influence was my friend Laura, who had taken me to Food Cycle, which is a very similar charity doing similar things to Feast. I guess we have a stronger emphasis on the community cohesion side. And that's what I cared about with these young adults being able to meet people from all backgrounds and have a you know a platform for conversation and normalizing a meal and a social situation and i gather that you gather food that's is it past its sell by date or past its use by date 
The surplus that we collect is certainly not waste anymore. It's a political term now. Surplus is anything that cannot be sold. So it will be past the sell-by date or it'll be something with a damaged package. One egg in the box has a crack in it, but the rest of the eggs in the box are fine. Or it'll be a misshapen wonky carrot or pepper or a slightly mushy banana. So it doesn't necessarily have to have passed the sell-by date, although a lot of the stuff that we get is. We'll have a lot of groceries coming in, fresh bakery, lots of tins with dents or plastic ready-to-use stuff, ready-cooked stuff that comes in that's past the sell-by date. But we are guided by the smell, by the taste. You know, we look at the food and decide if it's appropriate or not by the time it comes to us. And most of it is, unfortunately. So a lot of this food is thrown away in other supermarkets, other retailers, and it could be used. It could be very well used for someone who needs it, who's hungry. That's a very good point. Now, where does it come from in general? You said supermarkets. Are there any particular supermarkets that are more helpful than others? I mean, can you name them? Yes, we're really grateful to Sainsbury's Kilburn and Aldi Kilburn and also to Gail's Bakery. They are our three regular donors or we partner with them. So Sainsbury's, the manager, Jerry big thank you to him he really got this whole thing running he was totally behind me when I marched into the supermarket in my bike gear after work one day I hadn't arranged to meet him I just strolled in and said can I speak with the manager and he was really obliging and said yes we'd love to give our surplus to somewhere more meaningful than landfill Aldi our relationship is through fair share now originally it was through management there and we're very grateful to Aldi who give us tons and tons and tons every week but now it's mediated through Fairshare who are an excellent charity who help to find donors and recipients and marry up the two so it's less hard work for both the retailer who's got you know their sales to do and for the charities who are looking after their service users so very happy medium. Tell me about the logistics of this what's involved in actually getting it and what do you do with it then? Everything's local, so we pick up the food that's donated in trolleys that are uh, lent to us by the supermarkets and we stroll them back to the shelter. So it's all walking distance. I also have my bike trailer, which uh, often gets filled with all the bakery because there's so, so much bread given. We have a huge stack of crates at Conway House at the moment, which we need to give back to the supermarkets because everything comes in these big crates. But yeah, it's just man, foot, trolley. (laughs) Man, foot, trolley. I like that. (laughs) And Conway House is in Kilburn, isn't it? Yes. Does this involve any cooking by anybody at all before the food leaves the store in Conway House? We are cooking food from scratch mostly. One of our residents, Max, makes custard from all the eggs we're given. Nicola makes delicious soup from all the vegetables. Mimi gave us a Maggi mix so that we can blend up everything easier. There's, I mean, there's so many great people who are bringing their skills. A lot of the residents, who I won't name, also are cooking with us and it is a really fantastic 
dual horizontal learning that goes on some of these star residents who have now been given housing in Camden who unfortunately have left us <laughs> they have been excellent and have given us some of their recipes as well so we try to keep a log of all the wonderful things that we've created from residents and volunteers alike that sounds to me as if it might evolve into a cookbook Yes, I hope so. As soon as we've got one, we'll circulate and let you know. <laughs> and send it, hopefully. When you say cook, I assume you're not doing this in your own kitchen. No, it's all in the Conway House kitchen. So Conway House is a wonderful hostel for male homeless adults. It's 60 bed. They have a wonderful rehab programme. It's council and volunteer funded through Camden Council. And they let us use their communal areas and their kitchen, which is usually locked up or only reserved for special occasions, we are using on a weekly basis and we've got all our bits in there. So it's a shared space now, which is wonderful. It's locked so that we can maintain our food hygiene standards and so that things don't get pinched because unfortunately that's the nature of the kitchen. But the dining area is a big communal space and we can there's fridges where we can store some leftover ingredients if we need to. We do need, for hygiene reasons, to get rid of the food that we make on the day. So we have a collection ongoing of Tupperware boxes as well. Things like butter tubs and yoghurt pots, I've got some over there, hummus pots. We use that to repackage a meal so that any of the guys who know someone on the street can take some or they can have a meal for the next day. That's almost like Meals on Wheels. Yes, we're not delivering directly to people's homes. We don't have a delivery service. We're really functioning in the hostel at the moment, but we are planning to branch out in the new year to be continued. <laughs> that sounds interesting. Tell me, how did the Hanukkah party go in December? It was lovely. Unfortunately, I didn't get round to making any donuts for anyone, but there's always tons and tons of potatoes. So we did manage to have some uh, Lutka-ish <laughs> theme. Yeah, the, it wasn't hugely religious, but it was a very nice feast occasion. Because Conway House presumably is, is, is not, I mean, the kitchen is presumably not under Kershut direction at all. The kitchen, we try to be vegetarian, partly for food hygiene safety reasons. It's just easier to handle vegetables, but also as part of the ethos of Feast as a charity, we are trying to be sustainable. So we don't want to throw away any meat that is donated, but we give that directly to the residents who wish to cook it. I wouldn't ask my volunteers to cook meat straight off because it is quite exclusive. And are all the residents Jewish? No, this is, I just happen to be Jewish <laughs> and I just set this thing up. But the charity isn't Jewish. We're actually interfaith. The trustee board is from a whole mix of backgrounds. We have Hannah, who is Iranian-British and Muslim. And we have Jonathan, who's a reverend minister at the church opposite. And we also have my dad, who is the treasurer, and we're both Jewish. So there's lots of different faith influence in Feast. And I imagine that might make uh, lots of interfaith-type recipes. 
Absolutely. And there was a time where we were talking about making some sort of interfaith cookbook for Feast. But because of the unpredictable nature of what we're donated, it's you, you can't really plan these recipes. They just happen. You, you put stuff together and suddenly you've got a three course meal from a pile of crates that we've been given from Aldi. So, you know, th- there's no emphasis in the recipe book. Hannah Style, the founder of the organisation Feast, which looks at minimalising food wastage from supermarkets and giving them to those most in need. Speaking to community editor Diana Toman there. If you would like more information about said organisation, then please do head over to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And still to come on this edition will be our rabbinic thought for the week from Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence. Up in just a moment's time will be our schmooze where Clive, Tony and I will be joined by Judy Carbritz from the Jewish Poetry Society and we'll be discussing all matters pertaining to the new year. Don't forget that if you would like to get in contact with us, we would love to hear your Jewish views. Please do email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. You can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Well, now it's time to look at the second of our organizations that we are looking at in this particular episode of The Jewish Views, which looks at organizations that were started by Jews, but not necessarily designed to benefit just Jewish people. And this time round, we learn about companion voices. We'll hear about it from one Rachel Weston, the interim musical director. And it's actually started by Judith Silver. And if Judith's name sounds familiar to you, it is because we spoke to Judith a little earlier on in the year about one of her other musical projects, Memory Songs. All the same, though, Harley Baptiste has been speaking to Rachel to find out about this particular project, Companion Voices. And Harley started by asking Rachel to tell us exactly what Companion Voices is. Companion Voices has been going for quite a few years now in lots of different places around the UK. It's based on the Threshold Choirs, which are an American project. And my good friend and colleague, Judith Silver, started Companion Voices in the UK, I'm going to say four or five years ago. And it's based on a model of singing for people when they are at the end of their lives, if they want it, if the family want it. And why would you say companion voices is so important? At a basic level, it's based on the acknowledgement that singing is a fundamental element of what it means to be in a community, to feel part of a community, to feel held in a community. That's kind of the first premise. I think also it's very hard to know how to be with someone when they're at the end of life. And I think it's hard to know what to say. I think a lot of the experiences of death are beyond words, are beyond language. And music is something that's very kind of pre-language. It's like we learn pitch and we learn rhythm and we learn volume and we learn tempo before we learn speech. And it's a very kind of primal experience of what it means to be human. And all of these things are very related to music in the way that they aren't necessarily to language. And I think when someone's very close to death, using all of those things as a way of holding a space can be very powerful 
or very relaxing or just a kind of easy and appropriate way to be in a space with someone who's at the end of their life and also with the family or whoever's sort of around them and supporting them. It's a very easy way to get any one kind of emotion across, isn't it, to, to anyone, especially to someone in the last stages of their life. They say that the last senses to leave you when you're at the end of your life are touch and hearing. So based on that, you know, sometimes it can be a, a tactile relationship. We might sort of hold hands with the person if that's appropriate. So, yeah, that's also something that we sort of really bear in mind mm. that the sense of listening is something that leaves someone's sort of capacity very, very late on in the stages of dying. So that's something that we sort of take in, you know, have in our minds when we're doing this practice. Mm. Beautiful. So tell me who's involved then. So obviously there's yourself leading it and who else is involved and can be involved? As I say, this is Judith Silver's project. I'm starting to take over the groups while Judith is taking a, a short sabbatical. And the groups, people who are sort of being trained to do it, are very eclectic. Basically anyone can join. There isn't really a, a sort of criteria of singing ability. It's something people have a very sort of broad range of abilities. So it is something that, you know, you don't have to sort of audition to do it or anything. It's interesting that there is one group where there's quite a high concentration of, of therapists and people who are in caring professions. So that's kind of something that I guess people who are in the kind of therapeutic and caring professions are drawn to. And from what I've experienced of it, it's a pretty eclectic group group of people a community as you mentioned earlier. yeah yeah it really is and it, it's not just a singing group you know you, you wouldn't sort of go just expecting it to be a singing group I think it does require a sort of a basic level of being aware of what your relationship to death is and how you sort of deal with that when you're actually in a space with someone who is at the end of their life so I think at the very least, the people who are drawn to the practice are people who have an interest or an openness to understanding what their relationship to death is, what their experience of death in their lives is, mm. and being able to sort of process that in a way that connects with the music and connects with the sort of sense of community that we're trying to build. Tell me what's happening at the session at the Finchley Reform Synagogue on the 17th of January then? So it's a gathering of people, of singers who are interested in this practice and we will get together, we will sing together, I'll be leading the session. There's often an element of maybe talking about what, what, the, what the songs bring up for us and kind of a, a little bit of processing around, you know, what we're doing and what's going on. And sometimes the participants of the group will experience being in the centre of the circle and being sung to so that the vulnerability of being on the receiving end of being sung to by a group of companions can be something that the people who are doing it can experience for themselves. So it's a very, it's quite an intimate, close sort of session that you and everyone involved have with one another. Very much so, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of generous people involved and I think that sort of generosity that that people bring to it is is a really kind of a really beautiful thing rachel weston the interim musical director for companion voices speaking to harley baptiste there about their extraordinary use of music to those nearing the end of life for more information you can go to our website jewishviews.co.uk
You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that ordinarily you've been hearing throughout the program so far. Joining Tony Honigberg, Phil, Dave and me today is the founder of the Jewish Virtuous Society, Judy Carbritz. The subject for this edition is the new year, and the question is simply, which do we prefer, the Jewish New Year or the Gregorian New Year? Judy, let's start with you. What would you say means more to you? Well, I don't know if it's a case of enjoying, but you don't enjoy the Jewish New Year. That's a time for reflection and fasting. And the other one, we've got the New Year's Eve concert and, and beautiful music and, and revelry and parties. It, you can't compare. It's comparing apples and pears. It's well, well, indeed, actually, apples and honey. I, yeah. <laughs> I actually enjoy Rosh Hashanah because we, we do lots of family things together because, you know, we go to shul and we come home, we have lunch or we have Erev Rosh Hashanah, we have dinner the night before and, and, and that's quite nice. On New Year's Eve, I tend to spend it with friends rather than family. And I enjoy that as well. So mm. I actually, I think, enjoy both equally, but for different reasons. Yeah, but in actual fact, the one we live by day to day is the one that we Secular all live by. New yeah. Year. The New yes. Year. But Rosh Hashanah is something very special and very different. And I, I agree with you. I think you can't compare the two at all. Well, I mean, technically, you've got New Year by name, but that's pretty much it, really, isn't it? Because the mere definition of the Jewish New Year obviously implies that there's much more of a religious element to Jewish New Year. And I think that depending on how one feels about religion, I personally quite like religion. I quite like following it and having that belief system. And therefore, I don't mind Jewish New Year at all. But of course, there are some Jews who associate it, members of the twice yearly club, (laughs) <laughs> who would associate as the only time of the Gregorian year that they go to synagogue. Yeah. And therefore, sometimes that can have, I wouldn't say bad connotations, but it could have perhaps maybe less interesting you- because you associate it more with something you don't necessarily enjoy. But I, I do enjoy it. I enjoy and then I, I see friends there and then I go to... I think Tony got it exactly right that I spend... Rosh Hashanah and break the fast with family, with cousins, because I'm an only child. And I spend the Gregorian New Year with a crowd of friends. But there is a similarity in that, even with the Gregorian year, which is not a religious one, if you like. Well, it is from a Christian point of view, because it's meant to be the year of Jesus's birth, which it isn't actually, but that's another story. But we do make New Year resolutions and we promise what things we're going to we're going to do better this year than we did last year, which is Rosh Hashanah is all about. Yes, yeah. exactly. We do exactly. that, of course, because we ask to be forgiven and yes. to start all over again. Over again. And, and making New Year's resolutions is almost a similar thing. Well, this year I'm going, I would like, or I'm going to be, or I'm going yes. to do. So as I didn't do last year. So actually, you're right. It's, uh, there are those similarities with that yes. as well. Though, of course, you could look at Jewish New Year as being the time, and obviously in particular Yom Kippur, where we look at washing away the errors that we have made and then the new year the gregorian new year is more about us bettering ourselves as individuals and therefore making 
promises to ourselves that we are going to try and keep in a bid to try and become better but that's people. That's what you do, do you- in Yom Kippur. You sit there in synagogue all day and fast and reflect on how you've behaved the last year yep. and exactly. all the good things you're that are going to happen back. to you next year. But also you're looking forward to make yourself better the coming year yes. Yes. and not, so make, not, repeating not repeat those, what you did last whatever year. Whatever you did. I mean, repeating the good things but not yes. repeating the bad things. <laughs> but who's to say what was good and what was bad? You might look at something as being good. Someone sitting next to you in shawl on Yom Kippur might say well look at what you did this year you know you shouldn't have done that and you might think well I did that and actually it's made me a better but person you shouldn't you shouldn't be thinking about the person no you shouldn't you should be. only be thinking about yourself oh no but Tony is it's the other person thinking about, about me. him yeah. he, he's, he's good <laughs> Tony is focused it's the schmuck next to him absolutely <laughs> But for me, I, it's the same reason that I would go to shul each week is because it actually just grounds you, or it does me anyway. It brings me back down to earth with a proverbial bump, and it actually reminds me that I am only human, contrary to a lot of people's beliefs, that, <laughs> I, that I do need to make sure I am measured in my thinking and that I do think carefully about my, as it were, next move. So for me, shul each week reminds me to do that on a weekly basis and then the new year whether it be Jewish New Year or Gregorian New Year tells me that actually on a larger scale I have to analyse my life I have to look at what I'm doing and make sure that I set out a series of goals in which to achieve by the time the next one comes round. I did say earlier on that I spend Rosh Hashanah with family of course when I go to Shul it's got all my friends are there in shawl rather than my family because my family don't belong to the same don't sure are not in the same area so i do spend rosh hashanah with my friends but not at home with friends if you like not you know we we have family round for erev rosh hashanah and lunch on rosh hashanah and etc but my friends friends that i see in shawl i spend the gregorian new year with and so we're celebrating that as well. So what, back to what I said earlier, it, it is so, I so don't pref- much similarities. Do I prefer one? I don't. They I just don't are. They're just yeah. both there, and they're both. I did belong to different. one show where we were going to do a New Year's party. I was on the functions committee, and we wanted to do a New Year's party, and the rabbi wouldn't let us because the Gregorian New Year wasn't the Jewish New Year. It was secular, and he wouldn't let us have a New Year's party in the show. Well, that's just being intolerant. I know, it was, yeah. But you see, to me, I feel that the secular New Year is more about having fun, dare I say, whereas the Jewish New Year is more serious. But uh, to be honest, I don't think that that the uh, secular New Year is at all fun. I've never enjoyed it. Oh, come along to me with my friends. (laughs) You'll have fun. No, I won't. I won't. I find it very sad. It's the passing of time. I have great personal reasons for this, mm. but it, nonetheless, it's the passing of time, which is very important, and we don't take it importantly enough. At Yom Kippur, we do. We think You're about... You're reflecting, yes. We're reflecting mm. and we're thinking about the future, and... I still find myself, even with the secular New Year, feeling the same yeah, way. because people are saying, oh, well, that's, that year's gone, let's start the new one, and they're yes, all bubbly and exactly. bouncy about it but rather than thinking about it. But the new year will come, whether or not we're sad or happy, mm. it's happening. But it's so very if personal. We've, yes, but if my choice, now we, we can all only speak personally, is to be sad or happy, I will do what I can to be happy because it's, to me, it's mm. logical. But, but you can be sad that, and happy at the same time. 
It's called mixed emotions. Yeah, yeah but time only travels in one direction anyway. So whether or not it's the secular New Year or the Jewish New Year, you're still going to know that you are yeah. only going one and way. T- and today yes. will be yesterday, exactly. tomorrow. Absolutely. Of course, so yes, yeah, you're absolutely right. No, I would say though that for me, I, I look at New Year as actually a bonus because we've had Jewish New Year. That's almost been our our main New mm. Year for the religion. Yeah. And then suddenly we're privileged enough in this country to get to celebrate all over again with the secular. And I know some non-Jewish friends of mine who always tell me that you're lucky because you get two New Years. Exactly, that's what I mean. That's exactly <laughs> that's what I mean. That's what I mean. Yeah. This is my non-Jewish friends say we only get one, you get two. You know, yes. you get Rosh Hashanah, and then and you we get, get two Christmases two, if you uh, want to talk uh, about Hanukkah kids and presents. Well. Yes. That's right. Do you think yeah. we're supposed to believe in New Year's resolutions then, based on what you were saying, Clive, about how the holy days are supposed to be the time when we reflect and make ourselves better as individuals? Do you think somewhere along the lines then that it's not right that we? as Jews, make New Year's resolutions. Well, very orthodox Jews will not time. make New Year, secular New Year resolutions. I've known some many rabbis in my time. I have a rabbi as a grandfather. And all the rabbis, Ashkenazi, Sephardi, Reform, Liberal, they all have the same view that the secular New Year is just as important in its way as the Jewish New Year and they will all say you should celebrate it. That's funny, isn't it? Because many, we live by it. many of the, what I now call the nouveau from, won't celebrate the secular New Year because it's not Jewish. But with regards to the New Year, though, there is something very spiritual about both of them, technically speaking, and we are a spiritual people. That is, a lot of our belief system is spiritual. But I would say that the spiritual meanings behind each one are very different to me at Jewish New Year, I feel inherently religious. And obviously, I know that's the idea. But then come the New Year, secular New Year, that is, all I know is that people saying, you know, oh, I must go on a diet and oh, God, I must go back to the gym and things like that. And that's <laughs> yes. all that they seem to talk about. Absolutely nothing to do with religion whatsoever. No. It's just well, it symbolic. Is it it's isn't. I mean, it's that's you've used the word secular, which means it's non-religious anyway. Exactly. No, that's what I'm it saying. I'm secular. comparing. That's exactly. I'm comparing mm-hmm. the two. I'm saying when it comes to the Jewish New Year, absolutely, I feel very religious. And therefore, I recognize that it's uh, of high importance, as one would assume the high holy days to mean. But with the secular, New Year. I don't believe this to be the case because all you tend to hear about is people talking about going on diets and things Maybe like that. Maybe that's their New Year's resolution. That's what I was saying. Yeah, New Year's resolution. I wonder whether or not so there is something in Jews believing in New Year's resolutions that somehow isn't right. But mm. I also know others who just totally ignore the New Year altogether. There are some people I know who go. So you mean who make both a point. New Year's? Which New no, no, no. no sorry, the secular one, where uh-huh. they actually make a point of going to bed early. On the 31st of December, just so they don't have to bother with the whole midnight malarkey, which I think is extraordinary because there must be fireworks and racket going off around them at midnight. That's called getting old and you take a sleeping tablet (laughs) so you block out the noise. Do the Hasidic Jews, they don't believe in in the new year, in in the secular year at all? They wouldn't have thought so. They don't go by the calendar, do they? Do Do they? Well, they can't do. Well, one would assume they don't, because otherwise, why is it when Shabbat comes along, uh, they sort of make sure that they're back wherever they need to be by sundown? Mm. And that's because they're going by the lunar calendar. They can't be going through the the, the secular secular calendar. calendar. Although I've spent New Year in Israel, and and a lot of Israelis celebrate New Year, secular New Year. 
But and the Israelis, it's sadly, in my opinion, but that's purely my opinion, I hasten to say, <laughs> the majority of Israelis are not at all religious. Not, well, no, no, they're more secular than, than religious, yes. absolutely right. But, but a lot of my friends who now live in Israel, come from the English community, celebrate Rosh Hashanah and celebrate New Year. Well, let's put and they're I, living in Israel. That's fair enough. Yeah. You know. Well, let's put this to the test. What is everyone doing for New Year? I'm going to some friends for dinner and celebrating New Year in their house. <laughs> Clive, what are you doing? I'm going to bed at about um, the usual time. Point proven. And, <laughs> and, and Judy? <laughs> I'm going out with a crowd of friends. And, and Phil. To a revelry. And, yeah, and me. Now, there's a friend of mine who is this, I think it was this year or was it end of last year? Whenever it was, they very recently they've moved into their new flat and they have decided that they're going to put on a New Year's Eve party. In fact, I know it was the end of last year they moved in, but they didn't do it last year because there was no furniture in the flat. There's furniture this time. So we're going to go there and hopefully welcome in the new year with a fair old amount of alcohol. Yes, and cold. Are you Scottish? By <laughs> and don't drive home. No, no, no definitely we'll not drive home. home. That is actually one thing, you know, that is really, really good about certainly London. I don't know what it's like in the rest of the UK, but in London, nearly all of the transport, certainly the tube network, runs virtually throughout the night mm. on New Year's Eve and is free and the reason is it free it's free the reason they do that is because they just want to ensure that everyone gets home as safely and as efficiently as possible so it's very very good I think of Transport for London not that I'm making an advert for them but I do believe it's a very I good thing I think that's a brilliant thing yeah. to do it's so Clive you don't have to go to bed early you can now come to a party and get home free on the train I don't want to I've already explained <laughs> I, do you know what I like, though, is I, I just like the way that New Year's means a, a clean slate. It's a chance to start again. I know that's the same with the Jewish New mm. Year, but it's also the same with yeah. the secular yeah. one. Yeah, of course. It, it is a clean slate. It is a chance to look back and say, OK, do you know what? Maybe I shouldn't have done this, that and the but other. But that's what year. we've been saying throughout this discussion, I think, most of us. Most of us, yes, exactly yeah. the same thing. You, yes. wipe, you wipe the slate clean, either Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, you wipe the slate clean. And again, 31st of December. But in different ways, in though. Different I think different different ways. Rosh Hashanah, I will say I'm going to be a better person mm. spiritually. And yeah. with the other New Year, the secular one, it's more I'm going to physically be a better person. So I think, yeah, so I think the whole package is... It's slightly, it's in a different way. You'll be, them, you're, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm, I don't think I, I don't think I entirely agree with you on that. I think that most people think of it in both terms, that they think about it in a spiritual point of view. I'm going to be spiritually better, and I'm going to be, in the ordinary way, a better person. I don't think you can, you can divide it up. Two. I really don't. Anyway, there we are. All I can say is to you and to everybody, a happy new year. Good <laughs> Thank you. Good yontu. And my thanks to our guests, founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberts. And please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash thejewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. And it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue. The Mishnah teaches there are four new years. 
The first of Tishri, which we celebrate as Rosh Hashanah, and from which we number our calendar years, is the most obvious. In the Tanakh, Rosh Hashanah is identified as the first day of the seventh month. The first month is Nisan. Shortly, we shall read the command given to the Jewish nation in Egypt before the Exodus, that this month shall be the first of months. The first of Nisan begins the year for the dating of documents and king's reigns. The year of accession is the first year of the reign. When it comes to the next first of Nisan, however long he may have been on the throne, we begin the next year of the reign. What of the other New Year's? The first of Elul is the demarcation date for the tithing of cattle, and the first of Shabbat for the dating of trees. Just as civil society marks fiscal years and cut-off dates for school admission, the Jewish calendar has its four years, but there's only one on which we wish people, a Shana Tova. And what of January the 1st? Do we even recognize it as a date apart from any other? Clearly it's not our festival, and historically, a celebration of the date would be aligned with pagan or Christian seasonal observances. Our medieval law codes make the implicit link between the 1st of January and the 8th day of Christmas, and the Brit for baby boys born on the 25th of December. Nonetheless, they ruled that the day is not cherished as a religious holiday, so we're instructed against creating bad blood with our non-Jewish neighbours, and even allowed to reciprocate their seasonal gifts. The 15th century Rabbi Moses Isselis says, it's better to send gifts early than on the day itself, and certainly not later, as that might look a little grudging. Some modern authorities follow this vein, noting that New Year's Day's religious significance is thoroughly diminished. We may join in with the goodwill of a secular season so as not to cause offence. The 19th century Naftali Tzvi of Ropshitz and the late Lubavitcher Rebbe went further. They saw in the verse from the Psalms, Hashem will reckon in the writing of the nations, a hint to the secular calendar. Reportedly, through the desire to engage others in goodwill, both wished people a happy new year. Rabbi Avram Yoshua Heschel of Apt, 1748-1825, used to greet people on New Year's Eve, from today it should be a good year. He explained, on Rosh Hashanah, when the Jews cry out to Hashem for forgiveness, our prayer is not always effective against the many sins prosecuted against us. However, when it comes to the secular new year, Hashem sees that we marked our new year with supplication and awe. By contrast, the nations of the world mark theirs reveling in their appetites and desires. Accordingly, on New Year's Eve, Hashem is drawn to Israel. Even if from Rosh Hashanah till now our fate or forgiveness were with some reservation, from today it should be a Shana Tova. Only a great and spiritual mind could find a way to celebrate our new year on their new year. May 2018 be a good year. May we celebrate Israel's 70th anniversary. May we be strong in representing its remarkable achievements and towering contributions to our world. May it be a good year for us, our families and communities. From today, it should be a good year. It's funny, you know, everyone says as one gets older, time goes that much more quickly. And I can't quite believe we are talking about the end of 2017 already. But indeed we are. So that's where I have to say thank you very much to Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence for our very fitting thought for the week. And also to the other guests who featured on this program, as that's all the Jewish views we have time for. So thank you to Hannah Style, founder of Feast, and also to Rachel Weston, the interim musical director for Companion Voices. And indeed to all of the other contributors who have featured on the Jewish views throughout 2017. I would like to thank you at home for listening. And 
and we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Tony Honickberg, Sue Greenberg and Harley Baptiste. That is all the Jewish Views we have time for for 2017. So thank you very much for your company over the last 12 months. We do hope that you have enjoyed the programme. But please do continue to listen to us as we, of course, will be back with all of the latest Jewish news stories, arts and community as well. And of course, the odd opinion thrown in for good measure. We'll be back in the new year and we hope to see you as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with the Jewish News. I'm Phil Dave. If I may take this opportunity to wish you and all those who mean something to you a very happy and healthy 2018. And we'll see you next time here on the Jewish Views. Goodbye.